At the end of the day, they're the same feelings that we all have. We all want to feel like we belong somewhere and we all want to feel like we belong in our own bodies and we all want to feel like there are people around us who will take care of us and care for us even if we're not exactly like them or exactly like they want us to be. Welcome to In Tandem, a podcast brought to you by Ben Grenet and Karen Bitton. In Tandem focuses on stories of changemakers in our communities who are building a more sustainable and equitable future. The team at Youth Outside advances racial justice and equity in the outdoor movement through capacity building and leadership development. In this episode, we hear from Youth Outside's CEO, Kim Moore-Bailey, and Senior Programs Manager, Rena Payon. I'm Rena Payan, and I grew up in the Central Valley of California, and um, we are surrounded by agricultural lands. And so the outdoors were just something that we always did or were. I have a very, very large family, over 30 cousins on my mother's side. Um, and so we didn't all fit in anybody's house so that (laughs) the outdoors were a necessity for us. In the fifth grade, I was fortunate enough to go to science camp at Camp Green Meadows. It was the first time I had experienced outdoors away from my family, and I was shocked at how comfortable it felt because of all the time that I had spent in the outdoors with my family. I'm Kim Moore-Bailey. I am the CEO with Youth Outside. I grew up on Long Island in New York, and we were always a family that um, had outdoor experiences. We were very much, my sister and I, very much the like go outside and play kids. And I remember just being amazed at all of this activity in life that existed in our backyard. There's always been a a personal passion for me, but I would say, uh, you know, roughly 11 and and a half years ago, it really um, crystallized. And that was when our youngest grandchildren were born, they're twin boys. Um, And I think, you know, I had spent at that point, you know, years running parks and recreation departments and working for YMCAs and I, you know, knew the makings of the programs, but, you know, it's, I didn't have children myself, it was through marriage. So this was sort of my first time seeing it through a child's eyes, right? Seeing their joy, seeing their joy in things that didn't cost anything, like the pine cones on the ground. And what also broke my heart was watching, you know, parents of white children usher their child away when we showed up. I was cognizant of it as adults and I where I wondered, can they sense this as a two-year-old? Do they feel this as a three-year-old? Um, and, you know, would try and protect them from it. And, uh, and the minute they would want to leave, you know, um, 
all of this is ringing through my head and I'm like, no, we've got to stay. And I'm like, oh my God, calm down. You know, like if they really just want to go, they want to go. And, and I thought, wow, I, I don't, I, I am going to do this work so that the reason they want to leave is really because they're just so exhausted or they've had so much fun. They're just full or they're just so, you know, we've run out of all the snacks in the world and it has nothing to do with being made to feel that they don't belong here or being made to feel that it's unsafe here. Um, and I'm going to keep doing this work until like seeing somebody in a uniform doesn't make them scared, but that makes them feel welcome and that they, they want to be in these places and they'd never question that they belong here. And that is, gives me purpose. And that's why I do this work. For so long, folks of color have um, found themselves on the receiving end of uh, violence and and brutalization or exclusion from the outdoors. And it's hard to own something or feel ownership over something that um, has historically brought a, a great sense of pain, right? When we when we think about the history history of this country and uh, the removal of indigenous people from their ancestral lands, when we think about the history of this country and the use of black bodies and labor to build up what, what we all enjoy at this point um, to, to varying degrees, um, it's hard to envision an outdoors space that feels safe knowing that history. It requires us to take all of that into consideration and start from a place of building trust. Right. Um, if you can't trust the person that's taking you into the outdoors um, and you're carrying the the generations of trauma that's associated with the outdoors, you're just never going to make it out there. Right. And so there has to be a movement to build greater trust um, amongst those that do have access and ownership of outdoor spaces and those that um, that are deserving to be in those spaces and historically have not had that access. Um, and trust, like like we all know, <laughs> is a hard thing to build. It takes a really long time. And it takes um, a deep knowledge and understanding of uh, communities um, that you're looking to engage. And it requires time and intention and energy, right? And it's hard to have and build trust within communities of color if your person of color is being forced out of their job because they're not being paid a livable wage. Right. And so it's that's why we say that there's no single issue issue. You have to you have to have the foresight and and the understanding um, that you have to confront all of these things at the same time. And oftentimes we don't build in the time and intention to think about the things outside of what is this plant called? Uh, how do we provide the buses? Right. Open spaces are environmental justice places as well, right? Like the this idea that the the water isn't safe or the park isn't safe, right? That those are the places that there's an association with you, you got sick, right? If you went outside, um, and so it's safer to be inside. And um, 
that can be generational, right? Um, and even if there's been activity to sort of clean it up, right? Like they, they took down the plant or they took out, you know, they turned off the smokestacks. Um, it, there's still this association with it. And so therefore uh, it's still been passed down. What we're seeing more and more in the midst of COVID is that the way that we've structured nonprofits and the way that we've structured philanthropy um, is really highlighting that um, there is no single issue issue, right? And so previous philanthropic organizations that focused on the outdoors are now uh, needing to consider in the world that we live in that um, focusing on conservation as it's traditionally thought and in plants and places as opposed to people um, is really doing a disservice uh, to the health and well-being of the world that we're living in right now. We as an organization had to take all of that into account and consider, you know, are we doing the service that we say we're doing um, or are we replicating a system that is not actually serving all equitably? Right. And I'll just brag on Kim's behalf to her brilliance. You know, she she saw that early on and she she comes from a a long background of being a person of color in the outdoors, as we heard, right? And and it knows firsthand the inequity that happens when we try and box things in too closely. And when we replicate the systems that we know are not serving folks of color um, because we've lived through those systems. It's really a matter of recognizing uh, the power dynamics that exist and interrupting those power dynamics. At one point, there's something like 8% of all philanthropic dollars, and that's like across all sectors, you know, not even just the environmental sectors, was going to organizations that were led by Black, Indigenous, or people of color. And if you think about it, even in the environmental sector, right, that slice of that 8% is even smaller. Um, and we we were offered the opportunity to, to launch this new fund with, a, with real intention to prioritize not only some grant-making opportunity, but some capacity-building opportunity uh, to organizations that are being led by folks of color working within communities of color around conservation and outdoor programming. Perhaps we're opening up the network for other organizations that have philanthropic dollars to meet and celebrate in the genius that we are now also tapping into. Young people really inherited the short end of the stick right now. <laughs> they they, they uh, are the inheritors of, of all the wrongdoings of the generations before them, right? And, and still we see that there is a level of care and um, intention and thoughtfulness um, beyond their years, I think, because of it, right? I think of one of our outdoor educators that went through the program in 2017. Um, I knew her when she was a freshman in high school. She participated in a backpacking program I run, ran for high schoolers, and um, she learned how to backpack using public transit with me for the summer. And um, And then those high schoolers took out middle schoolers with me and acted as the leaders for those middle schoolers. And so they were 
developing their own leadership. Um, and her younger brother was one of the middle schoolers that we went backpacking with, right? And so he was, his experience was being informed by his sister's experience, right? And her experience was being informed by another Latina, uh, myself, who um, had had an opportunity to learn how to backpack and was sharing that with the next generation, right? And consequently, she she did the high school program. And then when I put out an all call to join the Outdoor Educators Institute, she was on board. Uh, she she put in her application and she had a strong application. Thank you very much. <laughs> and she <laughs> and she participated in the Outdoor Educators Institute. And since then, she has been an organizer for her family and her community to have outdoor experiences and exposures above and beyond what she learned as a young person and through the Outdoor Educators Institute. And her family has become more invested in the outdoors. They go snowboarding and skiing. They all learn together as a family. They go camping on a regular basis. The outdoors has become a more integral part of their lives because of her experience. And they are all voting adults. So when measures come up, when opportunities to act on the behalf of the planet that that <laughs> we, we've messed up for them <laughs> come up, um, they take those opportunities very seriously because they have an intimate connection with what it means to be outdoors and what can come of being outdoors. Um, and and they take those opportunities um, to, to try and make right what may have been done wrong in the past. We want to believe that if they have these positive experiences, that when it is time to vote, that there will be these touch points, that they will have this moment of like, oh yeah, this is a good thing, right? The, the community should have money for clean parks, right? whether or not it's part of their reality already or not, right? That this is something that will be a muscle memory for them because they've had that experience um, and that they will carry that forward. Because in the absence of it, how will they know, right? What What is the flip side? Um, and I look at my husband's family, generation after generation of black, men and women, now children, who do not swim. And it is this fear. Uh, and it, and I'm, I'm like, you all are just a case study. Fear of the water. And I'm like, this. we have to flip this paradigm. Um, and starting to just, you know, I step in and start to work with grandchildren um, around water and swimming and the ocean and where the water's coming from and they connected to the fish and the health of the fish right so maybe we can start to break this cycle now Not 
dissimilar to Kim, I, I'm very, very fortunate to have um, a brilliant and hilarious uh, 13-year-old nephew. And I, when I think about what drives me to do this work and, and what I strive for in my life, it's very informed by him, right? Um, and, I, you know, he's, he's this... <laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> he's this, he's this like weirdo little brown 13 year old kid. Right. And like, there's lessons to be learned in like everything he says and does in a way that I, I had never thought I could learn lessons. Right. Like there's an authentic connection to self and his, his desire to just be who he is. And there's an authentic connection to the outdoors and the desire to be in a place where he could just be who he is, right? And there's a desire to have an authentic connection to other people who are going to embrace, you know, this this weirdo little kid, right? And for in all the complexities that he is, and and it's easy for me to project those feelings onto him because the, I think at the end of the day, they're the same feelings that we all have. We all want to feel like we belong somewhere and we all want to feel like we belong in our own bodies and we all want to feel like there are people around us who will take care of us and care for us even if we're not exactly like them or exactly like they want us to be, right? And and I think that when I think about doing this work, but also I think about living my life, I want to live more like that. I want to live a life that's more worthy of having him for a nephew, right? Which means that I have to, I have to work to create the spaces that, to Kim's point, feel welcoming and safe for him so that he never has to question whether he belongs, right? And I have to, I have to strive and work to be the kind of person that he knows he can come to and, and be seen and valued and loved just exactly as he is. And I, and I have to work to ensure that the people that come into his lives are deserving of him. Right. And so when I think about what life is about, it's it's about authentic connection. And when I think about what drives me to do this work, it's to ensure that that all young people, especially weirdo little brown kids like him, have an opportunity to, to have those connections. I think what I often find asking myself, but also other people when we have these conversations with our community is, what are you doing to make the world a more racially equitable place, right? In the, in the times that we're living, it's apparent now more than ever that racial inequity exists, right? We can no longer turn a blind eye to the ways that anti-blackness and, and racism show up um, in our daily lives. And so more and more I find myself asking, and oftentimes on behalf of Youth Outside, is what are you doing to show that you are, um, that you're in this with us, that you're going to work to change, even if it means that you lose some of your power or you don't have the same comfort but what are you doing to change the systems that mean that 
so many people in our community, so many people that we love ourselves, um, will have an opportunity in the same way that, that, you know, our white allies have had those opportunities. And so the question is, you know, what are you doing today to make the world a more just and fair place? You know, what would it take to to step back, um, to allow others to step up? What does a racially just outdoor movement look like? Is the table big enough? Can we make room for for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to not always be asked to come as the sub or to talk about what isn't happening, but to be there as an equal voice, as an equal thought partner, to bring the knowledge, um, what would that take? You can learn more about Kim and Rena's work at youthoutside.org. Music for this episode is performed by Thane Yazzi on guitar and Ben Grenet on piano. In Tandem is created and produced by Karen Bitton and Ben Grenet and published by Tandem Impact. Thank you for listening. <laughs>